right, folks. Um, let's get started by reading from our passages today, and then uh, and then I'll we'll get going. Okay. So if you all want to turn to Malachi two, we'll start in verse ten and we'll go through sixteen, and then we're going to skip over a section here the, that Ricky is going to preach next week. We're going to basically, we're kind of <laughs> hitting all of the, what's wrong with the people <laughs> first, and then that big solution to, to the God's solution to those, to those um, his accusations. So we're going to do 2, 10 through 16, and then 3, we'll skip over to 3, verses 6 through 15. So read with me, I'm in the ESV version. Malachi 2, verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their unison? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. Chapter 3, verses 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, well, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. You say, well, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed, Evildoers only prosper. 
but they put God to the test and they escape. All right, church. <laughs> I love how the men are praying for me this morning and uh, it's, it's in how we've been kind of leading up to it the last few weeks. And um, it's, you know, some hot topics in the American church, right? Divorce and tithing. <laughs> and I get to do both. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going we're gonna, to, um, from this passage, we're going to look at two main topics, marriage and divorce. And instead of tithing, I'm going to wrap it into the larger scope of stewardship and also what they tell us about our deepest affections. So that's really the overlying, that's the big topic today. So we're, marriage, divorce, and, and stewardship, but really how they tie into our deepest affections. I'll just say it straight up, like, we're not going to get to the nitty-gritty of each one of those things, because each one of those things could be a whole sermon series in themselves. So um, just kind of be transparent with you, and I was talking to Drew about this yesterday. I've been wrestling with this sermon for a few weeks, and this didn't come easily for me. Um, I'm not, I, I have my convictions about these things, but I want to say exactly what God says about them, right? Um, What's hard, I think, is because each of these passages are rich in content, and how do you boil it down and not to the, to the essentials, the truth, and be gracious, but also convicting and, and without also chasing every rabbit trail that's out there, right? Um, so I want to discuss these heavy topics, but get to the heart of what God wants from these institutions he's set up and what he wants from us. And our intent today is to look at this prayerfully, faithfully, and in love for the holiness of the church, for the holiness of the church, to see and remember that Jesus died to claim us for his own, but then he also said, now go and sin no more. So we're going to look at these passages in three different, three different points then. And it's not just as clean as this, but God's original design, I want to lay a framework for that, how we flip that original design on its head, and then what can be done about it? What has God done about it? What can we do about that? Okay. All right. God's original design then. Um, and I'll get back to reading more in, in the passage. But we're really, I'm, what I'm trying to do is kind of uh, uh, extract these two topics. And then we're, I, I promise we'll, we'll bring that plane home. Okay. <laughs> All right. God has set up physical institutions to show us and teach us of spiritual realities. He has set up these physical institutions with a specific design and intention for them. By these designs, he teaches us of ourselves, of himself, and our relationship to him. God, therefore, has a design for these physical institutions with a set of instructions, so to speak, or way they ought to be for our true joy and to honor him. This applies to all creation, but particularly to his people. He tells us, this is the way marriage ought to be. This is the way stewardship ought to look. And this is for your benefit, yes. Yes. But Jesus also says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Right? So then, here it is. I have this underlined. Not only will God's original design be to our benefit, but the way we keep them 
will also reflect our heart toward him. And it will reveal to yourself, ourselves, the state of our true affections. Okay? I'm going to say that a couple different ways throughout. But there it is again. It benefits us. It reflects our affections towards him. And not you're not watching others for this, but this is really it is. It reveals to yourself the state of your true affections. So we're we're keeping this inward. Original design of marriage. Then, so let's we're going to kind of lay a, re- a framework here. Then, uh, uh, groundwork for marriage. A definition. Then, the legal union of a man and woman as husband and wife is the working definition we're going to go with. The legal union of a man and woman as husband and wife. In Malachi 2.14, it kind of lays this framework a little bit. Why does he not accept your offerings? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though here it is, she is your companion and your wife by covenant. In this passage, a covenant is a solemn agreement establishing a marriage relationship between a man and a woman. In this agreement, the man and woman promise each other that they will be faithful to this marriage for a lifetime, and they will call God to witness their promise and hold them accountable for being faithful to it. We also see, so I'm just, by the way, my my flow is going to be a little choppy this morning because I just have these big headings. So if you're into writing these down, this is like outline form, okay? We also see that marriage changes a person's status before God and before society. Okay? So marriage changes a status as person before God and before society. It changes its status before society. We see this in Genesis 2.24. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Marriage then, according to this, is intended to start a new family a new household, a new societal unit at its smallest parts, distinct from other families and households' societal units. The marriage ceremony also recognizes this in a society that the two are now thought of as one unit. Before the ceremony, they are two, and then as after the ceremony, those in witness and the whole society thinks of them now as one unit, a family unit. And additionally, in many societies like ours, they are given a new legal status, right? They have inheritance rights. They have authority over sickness and making choices. And they have authority over the children that they bear in their family. Now, marriage changes a person's status before God as well. In Matthew 19, 3 through 6, Um, Jesus is interacting with the Pharisees. It says, here it is. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer Two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Malachi 2.15, if we read that in here, it also says that, has not the Lord made them one? He says, in flesh and in spirit, they are his. There's a fundamental change going on before God. 
So before God, the two have become one. Next point, marriage pictures the relationship between Christ and the church. When Paul refers to marriage in the New Testament, he reaches back to the beginning in Genesis, just like Jesus quoted, and reveals the intention of marriage after the coming of Christ. He says in Ephesians 5, verse 31, Therefore, he's quoting Genesis 2, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He goes on to say, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery of marriage is now to be understood as representing Christ and the church. So there's more than, I mean, there's more to it than just bringing man and woman together. There's also a big representation, a physical representation of a spiritual reality, right? It's now to be understood as representing Christ and the church, where Adam represents Christ and Eve the church. He's, uh, 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 Paul says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So, the husband submits to the wife in love as Christ loves the church, while the wife submits to the husband as the church does to Christ. It's a mutual submission. Another point, believers should marry not, oh, sorry, believers should marry only other believers. In the Old Testament, God frequently, and we're going to see this, um, this is a direct uh, uh, point for this particular passage, um, but we see that God frequently prohibits Jewish people from marrying people of other nations who worshipped other gods. And let me get this uh, particularly straight first. It's not, it's not prohibiting interracial marriage. It is prohibiting um, marrying someone from another faith. It's a faith issue. Okay? He says, You shall not intermarry with them, the Canaanites. This is in Deuteronomy 7. Giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your... Sorry. Giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away. That's the thing. They would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. So before marriage takes place in the New Testament, that was the Old Testament, there's other passages that support that. But again, over flying high overview and making this quick, before marriage takes place in the New Testament, there's a similar concern for Christians not to marry unbelievers. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes. And here's the catch, only in the Lord. He says only in the Lord. Only in the Lord means she should marry someone who is in Christ, that is, a believer. Also, more generally, in 2 Corinthians regarding relationships, but also applicable to certain, uh, certainly to marriage, is what, is what Paul instructs believers not, he says, then not, to not be unequally yoked. Right? A lot of us are familiar with this passage. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with dark? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a, a believer share with an unbeliever? 
What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Like I said, uh, there's a lot more points to hit, but what I'm trying to do is create that, that, that foundation of how we're going to look at marriage, in, at least right now, okay? So uh, while not a complete outline and overview of everything that involves this, this gives us a basic outline for framing the marriage covenant as God has established from the beginning, from the beginning, and how we should honor his original design and purpose out of love for him and for our greatest joy. Our benefit, his honor. So what do they do? We're going to go, now go to Malachi. Flipping the design in marriage. Okay. Now that we've established a picture of biblical marriage, let's look again at our passage in Malachi at uh, verses 10 through 12 of chapter 2. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Then why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. So what we're looking at here is marrying in a way, if you would like to take notes, marrying in a way that does not honor God first. And one of those ways was by marrying one who does not love God. Okay? We're going to pick it apart verse by verse here, but it says, Have we not all one Father? Sorry, have we not all, yeah, one Father? Has not one God created us? Um, um, here, it's, it's not like a, a universal call here. What Paul or, or what uh, uh, Malachi is saying is, We are all therefore, if, if we are all made by one God, we are all therefore intrinsically worthy of love, honor, and respect. And we should treat each other accordingly. And so he starts off with that because it's insinuating they're not doing that. Okay? And then he says, well, then why are we, so there we go on. We, why are we faithless towards one another then? Why are we profaning the covenants of our father? And Malachi will go on to specifically mean the marriage covenant. Okay? Profaning it both by tearing it apart and by marrying, joining together representatives of two different loves not only a danger to the believer, but also a, a dishonor to God who has established marriage for his purposes and loves. He loves this establishment. And we can see the, the seriousness of God. And you notice I didn't read on in 12. But in verse 12, we see the seriousness of God in this matter. He says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. Okay. You put in serious jeopardy a relationship with God by joining together one who is, not, who is not him or herself in love with God. Right there. Now, I do want to say, and especially if uh, you know, someone comes along and listens to the podcast later, that um, you know, there's also uh, some compassion in this. I, it's not like... I remember when I was a young boy, right? You, it's not like you're only attracted to believers. Obvi I mean, I was obviously attracted to unbelievers as well, right? There are definitely, it's definitely a, a real thing, okay? Um, what God is saying is, he's, he's saying, 
yeah, that's there, but you need to guard your heart. He says that later. You need to guard your heart, and you need to do what I'm asking you to do. Trust me, okay? You can't join two people who have two fundamental different loves. It's not going to work, right? As well, in my own experience, then I'm saying this, the more, so with that in mind, the more in love you are with God, the more attractive it is the one who is in love with God as well, okay? And the less attractive the one who is not in love with God. But I believe this is the heart of the matter, truly. It's the seed of the affections, church. What you hold most dear, the true loves of your heart, it is that which you will find beautiful and in everything else less compelling. When the seed of those affections is two different things for two different people, the relationship is either already destined for strain or one of the two will realign his or her affections so that that strain is no longer. And this is the danger. This is what God was saying in our passage in Deuteronomy, right? He's saying it's not going to work. You can't do that. And most likely, you're not going to be changing their heart. They're going to be changing your heart, and you'll stray away from me. So don't marry someone who doesn't love me like you do. So there's the first part of, of, of how they profaned the covenant, okay? They were, they were not doing as God had asked. And he, again, says this for their own good. The next part then, Malachi 2, 13 through 16. I'm going to read that to remind us here. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offerings or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union and was not... And what was he seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. So chapter, sorry, verse 13, there are two interpretations of this church. The altar, or at least uh, this is what I've come across in my reading. The altar, they, some, some would say, was filled with tears of the former wives of the priests. And they compelled the wives, uh, because they compelled the wives who had been put away to lay their trouble before God in the sanctuary. In this case, God was not listening to the priests because of the grievances of their former wives. Or two, and it seems maybe more likely by a lot of the translations, um, they, they kind of lean this way. God was tired of hearing a hypocritical cry from the priests to him for not paying attention to their offerings. I like how the message puts it. Uh, again, it's just a, a paraphrase of God's word, but they say it really well. You feel, God is accusing him. He says, you fill the place of worship with your whining and your sniveling because you don't get what you want from me. Okay, God says that. In verses 14 and 15, um, they ask, well, well, why doesn't, why doesn't he? 
uh, uh, give us what we want? Why doesn't he take an offering from our hand? Well, here's why God would not listen to them. They have forsaken, divorced, you could say forsaken, divorced, the wife of their youth. They've broken the goal of marriage. She's your companion, it says there. A new godly family unit. They've broken the goal of marriage, and they've broken the bond of marriage. You made a solemn vow to your wife, the covenant, he was saying. So what really is happening here is that they've divorced the wife of their youth. They've separated and, and they've tore apart the thing that God says, do not let no man tear apart what I put together. So they've broken this original design. They've broken the intent and gift of marriage, which God loves. Reminder, God's desire and intent for marriage is, is for a lifelong relationship together. Again, I'm going to read uh, what Jesus said in Matthew uh, 19. It says, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for, to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, quoting Genesis 2, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, the male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall uh, leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Right? A little background will help us understand what, the, what was happening here. In this reply, Jesus rebukes and corrects a first century practice, a practice of easy divorce for trivial reasons. For example, in the Mishnah, which is a first collection of Jewish oral tradition, it says, The school of Shammai say, A man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. And the school of Hillel says, He may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. And Rabbi Akaba says, He may divorce her even if he found another fairer than she. In Matthew, then, what Jesus is doing is reaffirming God's original plan for marriage and showing what is still, still ideal for all marriages. Now, I think I've hit that home hopefully enough that this is the ideal and this is what God wants and he still wants this. However, God allows for divorces in some circumstances. Later, as we go on then in that passage, Jesus continues conversing with in that same dialogue, this is verses 7 through 9, and they said to him, the, the Pharisees, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus said to them, he replied, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Wayne Grudem comments on this, and he says, Jesus' statement, because of your hardness of heart, should not be understood to mean that only hard-hearted people initiate divorces, but rather, because your hard-hearted rebellion against God led to serious defilement of marriages, I have allowed this. So the presence of sin in the community meant that some marriages would be deeply harmed by hard-hearted spouses. And therefore, Moses allowed the other spouse to obtain a divorce. 
God was providing a partial remedy for the harm that a hard-hearted husband or wife could do to the other person in the marriage. And church, it's at this point that I really could go down this trail and make the rest of the sermon about this, but we still have to get on the tithing, so I won't, okay? Um, We could get into the ins and outs of what the Bible says about divorce, and I did. I read about this all this week, um, and I'll I'll just kind of step back and say I I, I did. I try to do a lot of reading about this because I I feel... um, I feel a little inadequate to teach some of this because that is not my, my training. I've done a lot of reading on it. I want to do a lot of reading on it and make sure I get it right. But Alyssa, was, she was, I was reading. She's like, you're not going to preach on all that, are you? <laughs> because it was pages and pages. But um, So let me just tell you, there's a lot out there. And if, if, this, you know, if, if, if I don't cover it all, I know that. And, and uh, please go on and, and, and do that reading yourselves. But, again, I'm going to come back to the Bible. We aren't going to say everything that the Bible says about divorce, adultery, and remarriage at this sermon. But I want to remind us here that it's not the goal of this sermon, um, but to sum up where we have been, this rabbit trail. God's original tent was for a lifelong commitment between man and woman to produce a godly community to honor him. That's the original intent. It is the view of God and the church that we should do whatever is in our power and through him, his power, to keep, to withhold the marriage covenant and keep it. And when conflict arises, to seek reconciliation with each other. Because this too, church, is a picture of God and the people. But... On the flip side of that, he does allow for divorce and recognizes it because of, one, sexual immorality, and two, the thing I haven't covered yet, and Paul establishes in 1 Corinthians 7, is desertion. Those are the two main, those are the two reasons that the Bible gives. I will kind of, this is an I and some scholars, and it's not exactly biblical. I want to make sure that there's no place, you know that there's really actually no place in in, in, in the Bible where it says explicitly, but some people have inferred that three, the cases for abuse and neglect could be another reason. But again, this is not directly recognized in scripture, but it is advocated and and debated amongst scholars and teachers as to what desertion covers. And if you think this is hard, (laughs) I want to say, by the way, this was also apparently a hard teaching Because right after all this, the disciples then expressed to Jesus their dismay at that teaching. They said, then would it not be better for a man to not marry (laughs) rather than enter into an unhappy marriage or have the chance to enter into an unhappy marriage? This seems really difficult. Yep. Yep. Yes. To sum up, Verses 14 and 15, then God would not listen to the priests because they had violated his directives, his commandments for marriage and had selfishly divorced their wives. By the way, I, I might want to add, because it's, it's, I think it's pertinent to this, the commentators had said um, that, in, particularly in this passage, it sounds like they had divorced their wives of their youth as older men because they wanted to marry younger wives which is, again, a completely self-fulfilling reason. 
right? It doesn't uphold the original intent of marriage. Verse 16, and then we'll kind of wrap this up. It's verse 16. Let, uh, um, let me read it real quick. It says, in the ESV version, it says, I should say, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, covers his garment with violence. Now, this translation right here, I don't know if some of you have the NIV. So I've read this originally in the NIV. And it says, in the NIV, in the NIV I hate divorce, says the Lord. And then it has to go on and say, I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment. Some translations say, the man who hates his wife covers his garment with violence. What's going on here? So step back just a little bit just to let you know that um, this is actually a, a rather difficult phrase in the Hebrew to translate. They're not sure exactly what the verb hates, like who's doing the hating, <laughs> um, if, it, if, it's, if it's God who hates divorce or if, if, if it's the man who hates his wife and God doesn't like that. So it, it's essentially, I, I, we can, but it doesn't change the meaning, the essential meaning of it. God still doesn't like divorce, right? He still uh, uh, has his way of uh, what we have said before, the the original intent of it. But we're going to go, I'm going to kind of go with the the ESV right here. It says, for the man who does not love his wife. Also, when he says did not love his wife, that that hate kind of implies that when we translate hate to that, it could be he who does not love his wife but divorces her. Here's the part we'll cover. Covers his garment with violence. What does that mean? The last part of the phrase, covers his garment with violence, means that he who divorces his wife not only hurts her, but hurts himself. Part of the marriage ceremony in this time involved the husband covering his wife with his garment as a symbol of protection. He brought her. He brings violence upon the marriage by ripping it apart, the marriage, and because they are not one, he cannot miss treat his wife without bringing misery and destruction upon himself. This is also Paul's intent in Ephesians 5.28. He says, So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Or if you put it negatively, when you neglect your wife, you hate her, and you neglect and hate yourself, and it will come back on you. Okay? All right. I still have to get to stewardship, so let's get on to that, yes? And we're going to, I am going to wrap it up into one, a little bit neater package uh, in point three, so to speak. But original design, let's go on to stewardship then. So we're into Malachi 3. And I, I found this quote from a commentator. It says, regarding stewardship, if God entrusts us with ownership of property, then he expects us to use it wisely and faithfully in service to him. So here's our point. Point one, under stewardship of its original design, God establishes ownership and private property throughout his word. I'm going to be pretty quick with this, so, so, and, and it's not going to be as supported as we just did. So um, hold on here, and you can write these things. Exodus 20, 15. You shall not steal. You think, okay. <laughs> right? Well, This assumes ownership. 
if you're not supposed to steal, that assumes that somebody else owns it and you can't have what they own and somebody can't have what you own. So this establishes ownership. It establishes and protects ownership of physical possession and also immaterial possessions also, such as a person's time, their talents, um, opportunities. Um, in academia, we said this is why you can't cheat because it is stealing someone else's mental property that they've come up with. Okay, And if you want to write down, I can give it all to you later. There's many examples of this ownership throughout Scripture. In Old Testament, Leviticus 25.10, Exodus 21 and 22 have those. De- Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 19, 1 Kings 21. In the New Testament, Romans 12.8. 1 Corinthians 16.2, 2 Corinthians 9.7, Ephesians 4.28. There's a bunch of places where where we we can see that God has given stewardship, ownership, possession as a way to to teach us. Again, these physical physical realities that, that show us these spiritual realities. Once again, the the 10,000 foot view, right? Next thing, property is the stewardship that we have from God. Ultimately, everything belongs to God. In in Psalm 24, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein. In practical terms, once I realize that God commands others and myself not to steal, I understand that I have an individual responsibility for how those things are used. I have been entrusted to these things that that the God of the universe has given me, and I must act as a faithful steward to manage them. In 1 Corinthians 4, it says, It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, there's also greater and lesser stewardship responsibilities, right? In 1 Samuel, the Lord makes poor and makes rich. In 1 Samuel 2, he brings low and he exalts. On the operation of the kingdom, Jesus in a parable says, To the one who has five talents... To another is given two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. So we have greater and lesser stewardships, but an expectation to be faithful in what he has given. To the one who receives larger stewardships, a higher, a higher standard is expected. In Luke 12, 48, Jesus says, Everyone who is given who oh sorry, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from whom, from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. And this is not in just in possession, although it replies very much so that way, but this is also in other things like leadership. In James 3:1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And then this also right here ties us back to 13 through 16 in Malachi. The priests were held in greater strictness regarding their stewardship, their keeping of not only possessions, but also of the marriage covenant, right? What do we read? And two, he says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. And this was specifically to the priests. So greater stewardship demands a higher price. Another reason God would deal with them so harshly. Okay. Point, another point then. In stewardship of what we've been given, God has established a pattern of giving, 
first and foremost to him and his work. In the Old Testament, God required the people of Israel to give a tithe, that is one-tenth, a lot of us already know this, right, of their crops and their livestock each year. Examples of this, Deuteronomy 14, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Deuteronomy 27, and every tithe of herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be, shall be uh, dedicated to the Lord. In the New Testament, a same, a same pattern is established. In 1 Corinthians, it says, Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed to the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and, is store, and store it up as he may prosper, the greater and lesser stewardship, so that there will be no collecting when I come. In 2 Corinthians, he says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then in Hebrews 13, he says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Another commentator says this then, this language, this language indicates a conscious analogy with the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Just as the Old Testament says God was pleased when the people of Israel offered their animals and crops as sacrifices on a physical altar, so these New Testament verses view our gifts as sacrifices of another that kind that are pleasing to God. Therefore, we put money in the offering plate or <clears throat> our jar, right? or write a check to support a certain ministry, or spend time volunteering at a homeless shelter, we should recognize or remember that God is watching our actions, and he recognizes the sacrifice of time or money that we're making, and he is pleased with that sacrifice. The pattern of stewardship also results in blessing. So it's not just, hey, give it, you know, <laughs> there's, we need, he does this for our own good, right? Remember? For our joy and f- for his honor. Remember that. So here we are, some patterns of, of blessing. God himself will provide for our needs when we give, Luke 6, 38 and others. Our giving will advance the work of God's kingdom on earth, Philippians 4, 17. Those who sow bountifully will reap bountifully, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Those who give generously, God will continue to provide for their needs so that they continue to give generously in the future. 2 Corinthians 9, Proverbs 11. Also, Malachi 3, 10 through 11. Right? And I want to take just a second here to, to read that and then and t- say one comment on it that I don't actually have in here. Bring the full tithe to the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, and see if I will not open the heavens, the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, I'm going to step off of my script a little bit here and, and just say explicitly that this is not saying that if you give money, then God will give back to you for that defeats the whole purpose. And we're going to see that in point three, okay? The heart of giving. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not, I, I give money so that God will bless me. Yes? But 
God does say that if you give generously out of the goodness of your heart, out of your love towards him, you have no need to worry. He will give you everything you need, plus he will give you enough for you to keep giving. That's what this means. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse and see that I will, I will continue to bless you so that you can keep giving. Okay? That's what he's saying. So that you can keep giving. All right. And the last one, increased, uh, our giving also sees increased heavenly reward. If you want to read that in Matthew 6 and in 1 Timothy 6. Grudem says this. However, these blessings will come only if our hearts are right before God in our giving. There's the key. If we persist in outright patterns of sinful rebellion against God in other areas of our lives, we should not expect these blessings. Amos rebuked the people of Israel, quote, who oppressed the poor and who crushed the needy, even though these people were, uh, uh, were the ones who brought sacrifices. They bring their sacrifices every morning, he says, your tithes every three days, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, said God. It's an outward sign of an internal spiritual reality. But just because you're giving doesn't mean that the spiritual reality is what he desires. I'm trying to say this carefully. He wants us to give, church. But he wants us to give because we love him not because we're seeking favor with him. There's the difference. So there's the stewardship flipped on its head in Malachi. We turn to Malachi and we see God's original design is for us to have possessions to steward and everything is God's and everything he gives us comes from him. And we flip that design when we believe that what we have is ours. This is what the priest did. Or actually, this is what the whole nation did. Right? We believe what we have is ours. It comes from our, own, our hand only, and we keep it for our own gain instead of using it generously for his kingdom. Or we give it to his kingdom, expecting for our gain in return. We withhold ourselves that which is already God's. And regarding this, I'm speaking about the tithe, right? Or that which belongs to God, that which is made holy to God. We recognize that we have possessions, church. I don't want to. I don't want to skate around that. We do have possessions that need to be stewarded towards other needs and also dealt with wisely in the future. Okay, so savings is not a bad thing. All right, buying yourselves what you need is not a bad thing. But we also talk about. We need to also talk about our hearts in giving what we need to give to God to recognize. Because here it is in our giving, we recognize that what we have is not our own. What we have is not our own, and that we rely on Him to supply our needs. And this in our possessions, this in the, in our time, this in our everything, because He He holds all things together. And everything he gives is from him and to him. Going on then, Malachi 3.8. And this passage um, is addressed not just to the priest. I said this already, but I want you to make sure to know this. This is not now we've been addressing. He has been addressing. He has been dressing down the priests, actually, right? In their military terms, you dress down someone. You were really, you're laying into them. He's now saying this to the whole nation of Israel. 
They were withholding that which was already God's and what they were given to steward and told to give so that they might supply the storehouse of the temple for the Levites, that they um, were keeping for themselves to increase their own wealth. They were robbing God. God also here issues a challenge, an invitation to return to him by again stewarding how he has called them to, thereby recognizing in their giving where their possessions come from and who truly owns them. Also, church, there are not too many places that God does this, by the way. He offers to have them put him to the test, yet he does so here, offering to bless them if they return in this way. Again, bless them so they can continue blessing others, right? Okay, here it is. I know it's gone long, but hang on for this last little part here. And here's where I think I, I'm going to drive home what I've been trying to say. The physical evidence, so the, 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 the title for this sermon then is where I was trying to boil it down to is something uh, I don't even remember. Let me go back here. A barometer for the heart. Physical evidence of a spiritual reality, both in marriage and in stewardship. So this last point is physical evidence of a spiritual condition. So what do we do all about all this? How do we apply these admonishments of God to the people in Malachi to ourselves? First, we need to recognize what the fundamental issue is in, in these big two topics, marriage, divorce, and stewardship. We need to recognize it not only in their lives, but in ours. As Ricky established in our previous studies in Malachi, the sins of the people are outward acts of a more fundamental issue. They no longer loved nor honored God in their hearts, their very beings. They no longer held him in highest regard in their affections. They treasured the wants, desires, relationships, wealth more than they treasured him. Their fundamental problem was a heart issue, a loyalty, a love, and an honor issue. Malachi 3.13 says, and here's strikes to the heart of it, I think, if you really read what's behind them. Your words, God says to this, your words have been hard against me. And they complain back to him, well, how have we spoken against you? What do you mean? And he says to them, you say, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Why do we do it? Right? And they say, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Translation from the Israelites, what are they saying? Look over there. Look at those people. They don't honor God, and yet they prosper. In fact, they dishonor him, and he lets them get away with it. What good is it, then, if we go through all this sacrifice we're doing, and he doesn't reward us? Well, I see no profit in it. I serve him, and serve him, and serve him, and what do I get? Nothing. That was their hearts. You see, you see that? You see where their heart was? They weren't loving God for God. They were loving him for what what he could give them. They didn't, they didn't give to him as we saw their best in previous chapters, and they were withhelding from him. But even what they did give, they expected blessing in return. 
So this goes for their possessions, yes, but also for their time and their relationships, their marriages. They expected it for themselves. As it was with them, though, church, so we must constantly do an inventory in our own hearts of these very things. And I say this, I say you in all these questions, but I'm, again, pointing three fingers back to me, right? Do you steward well? Do you withhold from God that which is already his in your heart? Is this, or how is this, reflected in your time, money, talents, relationships? Right now, we're not even talking about a guide on how much you should give, or what you should give, or where you should give. That's for another sermon. What God wanted from his people then and now is to search their hearts and for you to search your hearts. Malachi says this concerning marriage in chapter 2, but it applies both ways. He says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless. God says this to us. So guard yourselves in your spirit. And let none of you be faithless. Again, regarding marriage and divorce for today, we didn't go into all the nooks and crannies of what, uh, of what are legitimate reasons to end a marriage. And did or did you not do this according to what God says? Or what if you do it, what to do if you're currently in a marriage and with a non-believer? Or what do you do if you divorce for the wrong reasons but are now in a God-recognized marriage after divorce? But regarding where you are right now, let us all reflect on our marriages or our relationships if not married and do heart inventory. What are you doing to honor God in that relationship? Do you continually seek your own fulfillment in the relationship and get upset when you don't get that fulfillment? Do you pursue the relationship reflecting the relationship between Christ and the church? He who pursues and loves us relentlessly, even when we dishonor him and are not faithful to him. Finally, church. How should we go from here as we hear from God in Malachi? These things. Realize that our external acts don't put us right with God. Rather, our external acts show evidence of the spiritual reality inside Your actions reveal your affections, your heart, to yourself. Okay? To yourself. So then, check our hearts. Point two, check our hearts and ask God to reveal us our own hearts and to change them. Then, show gratitude to God. Point three, in this last part here. While Ricky will get to preach the good news, church, of God's plan in sending Christ through Malachi's prophecy. I can't leave you here without pointing to Christ. In Malachi 3, 6 through 7, this is a little nugget right here, and you should highlight it. What does it say? And this is why I'm so glad we sang, great is your faithfulness. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, therefore, because I don't change, you, O Israel, sorry, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. 
Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children, O my chosen ones, are not consumed. Why are we not consumed for being continually unfaithful? How does he not change? Our Father stays the same now and forever, immutable. Great is your faithfulness. He doesn't change, though, in justice. But he also does not change in love, mercy, grace, and generosity. So, if he is all just, why is it we're not consumed when we are faithless in our marriage to him? the holy God and have him still be just? How can he have justice and be merciful at the same time? I hope you know the answer to this one. Jesus, right? He is where justice and mercy meet and are fulfilled. Church, he was faithful until the end in your place, yet He was forsaken, divorced, separated by God in our place. He was faithful. He was generous in love, giving all he had, becoming destitute in our place. He, who deserved the highest blessing for this, instead received our curse. Church, let that change our hearts every day. Seek him. Turn your heart to him. Treasure him. It is then that our marriages, our relationships, our stewardship will start to look how they were intended to be. It is then that, those, that these, who honor, these, these things will honor him and look radical to outsiders. It is then that our good works are truly good. For then they are from a heart that seeks to please him out of an overflow of love not to be accepted by him or put him in our debt, not to gain profit, as we see in the Israelites of Malachi, but, as we have said, to honor the one we love and trust him most in our lives. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough thing to preach on, and... um, I know that I am ineloquent and inadequate, but for everything I can't say that you have given us in your word, for every place that I am in error or unclear, please, through your Holy Spirit, clarify to your church, to everyone listening. I pray, Holy Spirit, for the holiness of your people and for the honor of our God. Speak to the needs of each person in this room and every person listening to this. As David prayed, search us, God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us. Reveal that to us and lead us in the way everlasting. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call on you. Then, Father, guard our hearts. Each of us here echoes the words of David when he says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. 
For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths of the grave. Father, you don't change. You love us. And so we want to honor you in everything we have, from finances to time and talents and relationships. Teach us to do this. We love you, and it's in Jesus' holy name. Amen.